Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Let's pray and we'll dive into God's word. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness. We ask the Holy Spirit to show up here um, as we know he is, as you've promised to show up in the midst of your gathered bodies across the globe this Sunday morning. Um, what true hope there is in knowing, as we'll see today, that you have not left us alone, but you've given us your Holy Spirit, you've given us your word, you've given us one another for the sake of fulfilling all of the things you've left to do as we await your coming again. We ask that you be honored in our gathering, in our hearts, in our repentance, and in our worship. We pray this in your name. Amen. So we're nearing the end uh, of our series, our eight-week series called Jesus at the Center, which walks through for the goal of helping us read our Bibles, um, how Jesus is at the center of the entire story of Scripture. This is not a disconnected book. This is one narrative of how God has planned to redeem his people through Jesus Christ. And growing up as a Christian in the 90s, uh, if you were so fortunate as well, you lived through the era to where anything that could be made into an acronym was made into an acronym. And one of those acronyms was uh, the Bible. And it was defined as this. The Bible, the B-I-B-L-E, is simply basic instructions before leaving earth. Basic instructions before leaving earth. I think there was, was it a Cademan's Call song that did that too? La, 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 la. Anyway. Um... (laughs) If you know, you know. Uh, And maybe you've heard this idea before, that the Bible is basically an instruction manual for life, a roadmap to the future of what's going to come. It's helpful, but the problem with that metaphor, even though the Bible includes instruction, is that it actually severs the very heart of the Bible itself. It does instruct, it does guide, but it's not mere instructions, and it's not a mere guidebook. And we know this can't be true, just experientially. For instance, how many of you guys gathered your family around, read the instruction manual to the game, and then went to bed? How many times have you longed to just have somebody pull out that encyclopedia and just read an article to you as deep comfort to the anxiety in your life? How many of you are longing to just have woken up in the morning, turn left in 500 yards, knowing that that was what the weight of your day hung on? You see, instruction manuals are helpful until you know them. Then you can discard them. GPSs and roadmaps are great until you're familiarized with an area, and then you can figure it out on your own. You don't need any more help. And so if the Bible is simply those things, then there's a reality where the believer can mature out of hearing God's word. But if the Bible is first and foremost a story that is actual history, that makes sense of our lives and our reality by showing us the problem of sin that each and every one of us have. And the gift of Jesus Christ entering into our world to save all who come to him, who then commissions us in part of this saving history, this book takes on a different meaning. As we've been tracking God's goal to redeem his people to his place to be in his presence, new metaphors might emerge for you in how you describe the Bible. The Bible is a picture book of God's faithfulness to us. The Bible is the counsel of past voices speaking into our reality today that this, this too is sufficient. The Bible is a wedding ring that reminds us of whose we are and what promise we have to endure. 
The Bible is daily bread, sufficient to give us what we need to face the day. The Bible is the word of God, which speaks comfort to those who are discomforted. As Peter says in 1 Peter, it is the word of God, which brings us new life and causes us to be born again. It gives us not only information, but life and light and everything we need to love and be loved by Jesus Christ every single day. And last week we saw how Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament coming as God's Messiah King to save the church. And today we're going to look at the book of Acts and the 21 epistles or letters which follow that. And what we can see is Jesus's continued work to create, to sustain, and to grow the church. And as we've done in our previous uh, six weeks, we're in week seven right now, our previous six weeks, we're going to do three things. We're going to survey the story. How do does Acts and the epistles uh, progress the storyline of Scripture? Then we're going to study the story. We're going to see how we read it in light of its context and meaning. And then lastly, we're going to savor the Savior of the story. That is, in order to read the Bible Christianly, we see Christ in it, and all who see Christ are transformed by him. And so to begin this morning, let's survey the story together. And it's helpful, as we begin to survey the story, um, to kind of give a recap of where we are. In the first five weeks of our study, we were in the Old Testament And there we see some key things. We see the problem of sin. And we also see God's recovery efforts to redeem his people in God's place, in God's presence. And that restoration work was going to be done through God's Messiah King, through one who was going to come and be a wonderful counselor, a mighty king, a prince of peace, a servant who was crushed for our iniquities. And last week we saw Jesus fulfill all of that. He came as fully God and fully man. Jesus fulfilled the promise of the law that we could never keep. Dying in our place, he took the punishment that we deserved. And just as soon as he rose victoriously from the dead, he ascended into heaven to the right hand of God Almighty, where he is reigning everywhere today. But before he left, just when we thought everything was solved and he left, he gave the church two promises. We looked at those last week. Those two promises were that he was going to give the church the Holy Spirit and that he was going to come again. We live in the age of those two promises. The time between Jesus' first coming, when he was born as an infant, lived, suffered, died, and was resurrected, and the time when he comes back again. This is often called the church age, or as the Bible speaks of it, the last days. It sounds ominous, but as we'll see, that's how Joel and Peter describe this time. As we look at the book of Acts in the New Testament letters, they are written for those of us who are in these last days. Notice how Peter puts this in Acts 2. When Jesus fulfilled his promise and the Holy Spirit fell on the church, and he begins quoting the Old Testament prophet Joel. And notice what he says in verses 16 through 17. He says, But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days... It shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Here we are, post-Acts 2, in these last days, the days when the triune work of God we saw in the gospel is continuing to work, where God the Father is laboring on the church that God the Son bought with his own blood through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. And this is important for us to understand 
Because we find ourselves today in the exact same address most of these books were written to. When we read the Old Testament, we're not in the Old Testament with them. We don't have a physical king establishing a physical Israel. When we read the days of Jesus' ministry, we don't have Jesus Christ in the flesh teaching and doing miracles to validate his divinity. Even in the pages of Acts chapter 1, before the Holy Spirit falls, we don't find ourselves there before the Holy Spirit has come. But we find ourselves on Acts 2 onward. This is the same age we live in. Do you realize that the Bible includes your present reality? This is your moment in time. We're not reading distant history. We're reading your reality, the way in which the story is unfolding today. When you read your favorite book or watch your favorite movie, you understand everything that happens to each individual character, not as it relates to that character individually, but how it relates to the overwhelming plot. For instance, when you watch Lord of the Rings and Mary joins this traveling band, no one's like, man, is Mary ever going to get that promotion at work now? It's like, no, you interpret it in light of now he's helping. The story of the ring has become his story. And what these books do is they attach everything in your life to the progressive story of the gospel. No more do you read your own life in terms of your own reality, but when that story invades your life, you grapple with everything in light of where this story is going. Which means, as we've done, and we look at the geographical or narrative progression of each book or of each segment of scripture and the theological progression, that these are not for them, This is not merely for you as you understand to read scripture. This is for us as we today not only read scripture, but live it out. So how do we see this progressing in these books in our own time today? Geographically, what we'll read is this. We see the progression of the gospel to the nations through the church. How is the story advancing? The gospel is going out to every tongue, tribe, and language. What starts in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 1 is going to the world by Acts 28 through the effort of God's faithful church. But theologically, the thing that's fueling that is this truth. That's what we see primarily the Holy Spirit in the life of Jesus' church. Jesus is absent in body. He's ascended to the right hand of God the Father, but he's not absent in his presence. Look at what Peter says of Jesus in Acts chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. Listen to how he describes him. God exalted him, that's Jesus, at his right hand, and so he's speaking of this ascension, as what? As leader and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. And so what do we see there? That even though Jesus is risen and ascended to the right hand of God the Father, even though Jesus has sent us the Holy Spirit to all who believe in him, Jesus is still leader. Jesus is still savior. Jesus is actively, through the wonderful ascension, ruling, leading, and reigning in his church through the work of the Holy Spirit. And what we see is as the church grows out to the nations, it also grows up through the work of the Holy Spirit. And all of this is happening as we await the second promise, Jesus' return. Our key text, one that was already read for us today in 1 Corinthians holds all these together. And as I read this again, I want you to notice, do you see these themes? These themes of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believers. Believers laboring to grow up in obedience and walk with the Lord. Believers being together as the church 
and also believers waiting for Jesus to come back again. Consider again, 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. You were so close, Bridger. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace that was given you in Christ Jesus. Then every way you were enriched in him, in all speech, in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you await the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's the second coming, who will sustain you till the end, guiltless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so here we see a summary of what our main point is going to be today as we look at Jesus in Acts, in the epistles. And that is this, we see God in the church. We see how God is working and what God is doing through the means of gathering his saints together in every place through faith in Jesus Christ. So where do we see this? How do we study and apply this? Let's begin by studying the story together. Let's study the story together. Uh, These books we're going to look at today uh, are the book of Acts, which is full title is Acts of the Apostles, which as you read it, you realize it's really just the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles for the church. And we're also going to look at uh, the epistles, 21 letters written to these churches that were established in the book of Acts. And the book of Acts tracks this geographic progression from like 30,000 feet. Think of the book of Acts as this airplane flying over the landscape of the church. And then think of the epistles as someone with boots on the ground, looking around, walking through town, and seeing the growth that's happening at ground level. As we look at the book of Acts first, and then we'll look at the epistles together as a unit, we see two themes in the book of Acts that are helpful for us when we study it. And those two themes are taken straight out of Jesus' promise to the church in Acts chapter 1, and that is the theme of power and of witness. Right before Jesus ascended, and while the apostles were wondering where they were at in the story of God's people, God's place, and God's presence, Jesus gave them these instructions in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. So this is right before Jesus ascends to heaven. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? So they're asking, where are we at in this story? Is it over? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things and they were looking on, he was lifted up. And a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? Isn't that the most wonderful question? (laughs) Here someone ascends up into heaven and these angels are like, what? But what a glimpse into what these angels, we'll look at this next week, what these angels deserve in heaven for all eternity. (laughs) Heaven is so wonderful. God is so glorious that a man ascends up into heaven. They're like, what, did you see something? Did I miss it? What's going on? But here, this is the glorious reality that is being painted for us in Scripture. He said, this Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Far from being the end of the story, 
Acts, as we talked about last week, is the beginning. It's the work of Jesus, which is completed in the gospel to atone for sins and create a confessing people that enables the work of the church by giving them the Holy Spirit. As the Holy Spirit comes into the church in power, the gospel goes out to the nations through the church. And in Acts chapter 2, we see when the Holy Spirit first comes. If you've ever turned on a hose or a faucet, you know this this pregnant moment of pause because you realize sometimes that thing just blasts open. Comes as this powerful flow. There's gurgling and there's spray and there's strong pressure at first until it solidifies. And this is a lot of... It's a great example for what we see happening in Acts chapter 2. When the Holy Spirit shows up, like God just opened the spigot, and we see so much happening. Read with me this account of what happens at the the Feast of Pentecost. That's why it's called Pentecost. It's a Jewish feast that they had gathered at. And we're going to read 21 verses, beginning in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at the sound, the multitude, at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. Egypt and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We heard them telling in our own tongues, the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter standing with the 11 lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea, And all who are in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs on earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So there's a lot going on here that actually stretches, what we just read in Joel, stretches from this Acts 2 moment to this Revelation 21 moment when Jesus finally comes back. And there are two Old Testament themes we need to bear in mind when we understand what's happening here that are clear to us having walked through this point, having understood the story. And the first is that we are seeing the fulfillment of the new covenant promises we saw in the prophets. Remember what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 36 verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes 
and be careful to obey my rules. Far from the law being applied from the outside in, God promised because of Israel's failure that he would put a spirit inside them, that change would come from the inside out. Consider also how Jeremiah puts this in Jeremiah 31, verse 34. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother. So he's actually in the context, if you look at verse 31, he's talking about this new covenant at the same time. And so that's what's happening here. In this new covenant... No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sins no more. So what is he saying when he says that in the new covenant, no one needs to be taught to know the Lord? Does that mean in the new covenant, who the Lord is is really unimportant, and there's this pluralism, and whoever, whichever God you worship, whatever tree you pray to, all dogs go to heaven? No, not at all. But there's a profound reality here. And that reality is this, that in the old covenant, when you had children or when people came in to live among the people, you had to teach them who the Lord was. But in the new covenant, the ones who know, know the Lord. This is a covenant for believers. You don't enter into the covenant by being marked off as a Jew through circumcision, as a physical people, and then hopefully as you get older, you know the Lord. The people who belong to this covenant know the Lord. How? Through atonement. God's forgiving their sins. He's bringing them faith through Jesus Christ. To be in this covenant is to be a believer in God through Christ and Christ alone. Here by faith that Jesus did everything required to save sinners and restore us to God, the people of God are filled with the presence of God through the work of the Holy Spirit. God, or Jesus' promise has come true. They're not yet in God's final place. We'll see that next week. But now God's people have a unique and real presence by faith in Jesus Christ. Contrary to what we see in the Old Testament, this Holy Spirit is not merely for special kings and special prophets, but it's for all who believe. And we see this in the early narratives of the book of Acts where the apostles are moving from community to community as they help people understand the full truth of faith and repentance in Jesus Christ as he being the promise of God's salvation. They all receive the Holy Spirit. You see, far from the book of Acts teaching that there needs to be a second baptism in the Holy Spirit, it's actually quite the opposite, that everywhere we see that the gospel is believed in Jesus Christ with faith and repentance, those people get the Holy Spirit because this is God's promise in the last days that by faith, God dwells with us through the Holy Spirit. This is the new covenant. This idea of the gospel going forward through faith is something that's emphasized in our second Old Testament theme. Do you remember all the way back to Genesis chapter 11? And we read of this story of these, somebody does, yes. Uh, we read of this story of the people of the earth coming together and having this great idea. Let's build a tower to heaven and then we'll be better than God. We'll be stronger, we'll be more powerful. And God sees that and he sees this isn't going to end well. And so what does he do? He scatters their language because it's hopeless. There was only pain and trauma that would come from that because they are not God and they cannot be better than God. And so he scatters them and diversifies their language at Babel. But what do we see here? We see people from every nation, a multitude of people, coming together in diverse languages for the cause of remembering God's faithfulness in the Feast of Weeks. And when the Holy Spirit falls, what happens? the effects of Babel are reversed. In unity of language, 
they proclaim the mighty works of God. The effects of sinful division were in a moment overcome in this beachhead event, this turning on of the faucet that brought a unity of language through the work of the Holy Spirit. And what are we as readers to understand at this point? Something big is about to happen. The gospel is about to go global. As Peter draws out Joel's prophecy for this new people, this new presence will fall on all, sons and daughters, males and females, slaves and free, all who have faith in Jesus Christ, all who call on the name of the Lord, receive this. The gospel and its effects are open to all who believe, even Gentiles. And that's the scandal of the book of Acts. As Gentiles, those who are not by, by a physical birth, heir to the promises of Israel, as they receive faith, they get the same Holy Spirit. They get the same promise confirmed to them. And they're like, well, is this legit? What does this mean? And Peter reports back to the church in Acts 11. He says, they're believing in Jesus as God's promised Messiah. They're getting the Holy Spirit as God has promised to give the Holy Spirit. What more can we say besides God is working among the nations? And in Acts chapter 11, the Gentiles fell silent to this news. They glorified God and they said to the Gentiles also, to the nations, God has given repentance that leads to life. And this was so incredible that God's promise was going to the nations, that this is part of the reason why we see so many miracles in the book of Acts. It's so scandalous to think that God is proving these miracles to be like, no, this is the work of God. This is the work of the mighty working God of all history. This is the fullness of the Old Testament's promise that blessings would come to the nations, that a people that was being swept up from every tongue, tribe, and nations was not the work of some great delusion, but it was the work of God's dramatic plan unfolding. This power that fell through the Holy Spirit produces a witness in the life of the church. Everywhere the Holy Spirit filled believers, the message of the gospel, witness to the mighty works of God went with them as well. When people believed in the gospel, they immediately began to bear witness to it. They started the work of evangelism almost immediately. And this work of evangelism came in a time where at best the culture was skeptical. If you remember, Jesus was just murdered for his religious beliefs. And at worst, not only was it hostile in the religious sect, but it was hostile in the governmental sect. But Acts tracks this glorious inversion. And if you want to get hope for evangelism, if you want hope for global missions, you have to see this inversion here. If we want to hope in our own efforts, then we need to learn to see things through the eyes of God. Because it was in circumstances where things where it seemed the church lacked the most power, lacked the most worldly might, that God worked in the most exposing and wonderful ways. In those places, when all we brought to the table was weakness, God brought the wonder. Almost immediately, the authorities around the church realized that if they wanted to do something about it, they should probably start killing Christians. But almost like quicksand, the more the secular authorities tried to do something about it. The more they moved, the further they got from their goal. In Acts chapter 7, a young man full of the Holy Spirit named Stephen became the first martyr of the Christian church. But as one early church pastor said regarding church history, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Just like how after a dandelion dies and you could blow it as your children all do on your freshly manicured lawn, they blow that white head and the seeds go everywhere. So too, 
It was through the persecution of the church that the gospel flourished. In Acts 9, a Jewish man named Saul is trying to round up the Christians. Saul, we see, was in charge of Stephen's persecution. And it says, you'll notice, he's trying to bring them to Jerusalem. What's interesting is what we read in Acts chapter 8, right before we see this, is on account of Paul's persecution of Stephen, the gospel gets spread. The disciples disperse, and it tracks Philip, who goes down to Samaria and preaches the gospel. And people believe and are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Philip travels even further south towards Gaza in Egypt. And he runs into a eunuch from Ethiopia. And he shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch. And he is converted. And he goes back to Ethiopia where he works in the queen's court. And then after Philip finishes with that, he goes all the way up the Mediterranean. And Luke tells us he preached the gospel at every town on the coast. And so when we get to Paul's desire to gather all the Christians and bring them to Jerusalem, we laugh. (laughs) Because despite Paul's persecution, Saul cannot contain the church. The gospel is going global. And even more than that, God saves Saul. Think of people in your life who you say, these people will never believe. Friends, if we do not have a sovereign God, you're right. But if we have a God who saves all of those who, like us, were dead in our trespasses and sins, then we have a God of the souls who reaches into our dead hearts and calls us to life. And as Saul's desire in the flesh was to crush the church, Jesus saved him and gave him a new heart and commissioned him to serve the church he long tried to kill. Commissioned him specifically to the Gentile Christians. We all see other leaders rise up against the church. Secular rules like Herod flaunt their authority. But then we get these little asides uh, about the death of Herod in Acts chapter 12, where we read this. Verses 23 through 24. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod down. That's him. I'm adding that there. The Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last But the word of God increased and multiplied. What is Luke doing here? He's showing that as the big, strong human leaders are wielding their big, strong human swords, God is in control. In a moment, he could remove them. And even in the midst of that persecution, God's word multiplied. Saul and his conversion is given the name Paul. And he goes on as Acts continues on missionary journey after missionary journey with other apostles preaching the gospel and establishing churches. And at the end of the book of Acts, what started with a small group of scared believers in Acts chapter one has now gone all the way to Ethiopia, all the way up the coast of the Mediterranean, into Turkey, over into Europe, and is pushing onward even into Rome. It's gone global. Do you remember the promise God made to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12? Look at how the story makes sense of what we're seeing. This is the very first time God appears to Abraham. Abraham. Here he's simply called Abram. Now the Lord said this to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
What did God promise to Abraham, the father of the Jews? That in him, in his blessing, the families of the earth will be blessed. And what are we seeing here in the book of Acts? That the nations are finding salvation in the God of Abraham. Blessing is coming to the world through faith in Jesus Christ. What we're seeing in the new covenant is that God's promise is not set apart by the physical boundaries of the promised land, but instead by the boundaries of faith in Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered how you might be blessed? How does your culture answer that? How do your parents, your professors, your employer answer that? If you want the blessing of the God of Scripture, that is the promise of being, having your sins removed and salvation given, you do what Peter says to do in Acts chapter 2. Repent and believe every one of you in the gospel. Be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Come to Jesus and find rest not based on what you have done, but on who Jesus is and what he has done. By the end of the book of Acts, the gospel has gone to the known Roman world. But even this is not the end. The story isn't done. The book of Acts isn't the beginning and end of the church age. It's just the beginning. As I mentioned, we live in this story. We're progressing in the same storyline with the same power, the same gospel, the same God, and the same need. Today, the gospel has gone out. We are here today because of the expansion of the gospel of Acts. It's reached us. But friends, do you realize that 42% of our world, 3.2 billion people have still never heard the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not 3.2 people who have rejected and do not believe. That is 3.2 people to whom the message of salvation and faith in Jesus Christ has not yet come. And I could tell you what probably most of us are thinking is the same thing we think. We begin to rationalize God's justice. Well, what will happen to those who never heard? That is not a gospel impulse. The gospel impulse is, we must go. What is abundantly clear in scripture is that we, the ones who have been brought into God's people, are called to go with the message of the gospel to the nations, not loving our lives, even unto death. Seeing God work abundantly in the midst of the lost. Lost who are here in our cities, in our jobs, sometimes in our home and in our classrooms. What does it look like for you to recognize every piece of your life is tied up in this story of the gospel going forward through the witness of the church? I've never met a single person who says, I evangelize enough. We all want to do it more. We all feel guilty by places where we're not doing it well enough. But the message of what we see in the book of Acts doesn't produce guilt. It produces wonderful motivation and divine optimism. If you're wrestling with what that looks like and you want to know what it looks like to bring the gospel to bear in in clear ways, then come talk to me. Talk to someone in your community group because we're doing this together. This is a group process because it was in the book of Acts. This is what the church does, and it's what the church is here to help with. As Acts tracks the global expansion of the church, we also get glimpses into what that global expansion brought on the ground level, how spiritual growth came with that. We see this in Acts chapter 9, verses 30 and 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up 
So what does it look like to have peace and be built up? Well, it's defined here by Luke. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. The church walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Spirit, and in that, it multiplied. Sovereign Hope, there's our metric for church growth. (laughs) Fear God and be comforted by the Holy Spirit. It's this walking in the fear and comfort that we see the growth of the church in the epistles. That's what the rest of these letters go to show us. What does it look like to live in submission to God and then to walk that out in the comfort of the Holy Spirit? These letters outline that. And so the word epistle, if you're unfamiliar with it, it just means letters. There's 21 of these that we look at. And I'm going to go through each one now. No, I'm kidding. Um, I'm going to summarize these, but these can be summarized. These were written to at least 15 distinct communities, and actually even more. Many of them were written to the, to the churches in exile. It was assuming many, uh, many recipients that were circulated uh, with these letters by at least five authors in congregations located across the Middle East, Asia Minor, and Europe. And as we saw in Acts, Paul going on these missionary journeys to plant churches, here you see Paul and other apostles circling back to these churches, communicating that once the gospel is heard, the life of the Christian has only begun, that more encouragement, more growth is needed. And in the book of Acts, we see the power and witness of the gospel. Here in the book of, or in the epistles, we see two themes as well. We see the themes of growth and glory. Growth and glory. We see the church is not only growing out, that's this way, growing out geographically, but it's growing up by the work of the Holy Spirit, walking in holiness and submission to God. We also see the church is motivated by the glory of God. And they're also comforted by the glory that awaits them when Christ comes back. In these letters, really quickly, we see three things. We see the establishment of the church, the energy of the church, and the eternity of the church. The establishment, the energy, and the eternity. Let's first look at the establishment of the church. Because as soon as the Holy Spirit fell, no one needed to teach the church. They just started gathering together. I always say that I've done lots of pre-marriage in the church, and I've never once... I've never once had to tell a couple that when they get married, they need to move in together. And you know what? They've all done it despite my failings. It's the natural trajectory of marriage. When people are saved, they're drawn together. That's what the word church means. It's a congregation. It's this assembly. And this is because this was how Jesus determined it would happen in Matthew chapter 16, verses 17 through 19. Right after Peter confesses faith in Jesus, look at what Jesus says. Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The church was established first and foremost on faith in Christ. To be marked out to the church is to be marked out by Jesus, and nothing else. And much of what's written in these letters is the apostles putting in order the kind of church that Jesus established and taught his apostles. That's why Jesus' commission at the end of the book of Matthew was not simply to go to the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But there's a second part, right? Do you know what it is? And teaching them to obey all that I have commanded them. The gospel consumes your life. It doesn't simply recategorize it. Everything gets caught up in this plot of redemption and central to the missionary efforts of the church or central to the missionary efforts of the apostles was church planning. 
This is why Paul left Titus in Crete to put the churches in order to establish elders. This is why Peter challenged the elders in 1 Peter 5 to be faithful shepherds in an unfaithful world. This is why the author of Hebrews encourages the church in saying this in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, or 24 through 25. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so now, if you remember back, when we looked twice now at 1 Corinthians 1, what we're seeing is we're seeing the chapter of the church age. As we wait for Jesus to come back, what are we doing? We're gathering together. We're pursuing holiness. We're pursuing obedience. We're proclaiming the word to one another. Everyone wants evangelism. Everyone wants global mission. And you might find it counterintuitive. But if you want to be passionate about evangelism, if you want the nations to be gripped by the glory of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must be passionate about what God has done and is doing through the local church. Healthy churches produce healthy worship, and that's the end of all mission. It's to draw those on the outside to say, come and worship the glorious God who says what was read earlier by Nancy. He says to those who are not a people, now you are my people who calls people out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This happens through the local church. And part of this establishment that we see is that the church is put in order with offices. It's the office of elder, me and five other elders here at the church. The office of deacon. There's the ordinances of baptism, which marks off the Lord's people who have confessed and believe in Jesus. There's the Lord's Supper to unite the church. And there's one that's often forgotten of in today's church that's here historically in church history, but also present in scripture. And that's the the ordinance of church discipline to protect the church and to care for the sinner, calling them to repentance. And this is what Jesus says the biblical church ought to look like. But he not only says what the church looks like, but he tells us what the church is supposed to do. What is the work of the church? What is the energy of our efforts here at Sovereign Hope? This is the second point here. We see the energy of the church. Let's turn to the book of Colossians. What are the elders and deacons and members laboring together to produce? What are we covenanting to do in baptism, Lord's Supper, and discipline? Well, Paul gives us a glimpse of this in chapter 1, verses 28 and 29. Him we proclaim. That's Christ. That's right what we see in verse 27. Christ in you. Him we proclaim, warning everyone, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, so there's the Holy Spirit showing up again, that he powerfully works within me. What's the role of the church? To proclaim Jesus, to engage with others. To what end? Well, here we see what Paul's end was, that we may present as many people as possible by the power of God that works in us, mature in Christ Jesus, that we grow up in faith and holiness. The goal of the church is not to gather people. The goal of the church is not to transform culture. The goal of the church is not to eliminate poverty and racism. The goal of the church is to unleash the transformative grace of God through the message of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit so that people are changed. And every other aspect of change you want to see in the culture is downstream of the change God makes in his people's lives through faith. That's how powerful the salvation of God is. God has not come to transform a culture, but to make Christians. 
and Christians embody culture through their church. When God's people are filled with the Holy Spirit, then the places in which God's people come, places like this today, they will inevitably begin to look more like Eden, bit by bit, every day. But the change we want to see in the world starts in here. Do you realize that? This is a participatory place. It starts here, not out there. I found an article online that listed the 51 that this author found, 51 other one another commands just in the New Testament. And so I stripped out the gospel ones here. And so there's 51 commands just from the epistles. Can you imagine how much closer to Eden this would look like if we committed ourselves with all the energy the Holy Spirit works in us, everything God asks for us, he gives to us in the gospel. If we were committed to love one another, live in harmony with one another, instruct one another, wait for each other, have concern for one another, serve one another in love, bear the burdens of one another, sing songs to one another, be compassionate and kind to one another, stir up one another in love and good works, and remind one another daily as the day of Jesus draws near. When we get to the book of Revelation next week, we see what this looks like in its fullness. In the book of Revelation, we see the garden of God's people. But in Acts and the epistles, we see the greenhouse. We see where God is growing us up bit by bit for what we will be in that last day. We see what the recreated world looks like in Revelation, but right now we see that God has begun his recreative process, not in the world, but in the church. And this is what we work for. This is why we evangelize the lost. This is why we go to the nations. This is why we help one another follow Jesus. And this is why it matters to you, because this is not the work of merely the elders or the deacons or the missionaries or the community group leaders. The story of the Bible brings purpose to your life because it's inviting you to participate in it. This is what we see in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints. That is you. That is anyone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. To what end? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The life of the church is a call to together present one each other mature in Christ. Do you see your life through this story? Do you see that what God is doing today is not separate from the passions and skills and places God has put you right now? That these sermons, that the songs we sing, that the Bible studies you go to, that the community groups you attend, they have a purpose. And that purpose is to equip you to help others follow Jesus, to help others know Jesus. As Paul says, the Holy Spirit gives you energy. Where is that energy showing up in your life? Where are you using that divine gift for the furtherance of God's kingdom? And this is why we have membership here at Sovereign Hope. Membership is a place where we say, God has shown us what it looks like to live as Christians. Let's do this. Let's covenant together to fulfill all of the commands that God has given to us. And that looks like three things for us. It looks like we at Sovereign Hope as members, we believe together. God cares about the doctrine of the church. If you're going to call somebody to repentance, you need to agree what you're calling them to. It looks like belonging together. If we're going to love one another, to bear one another's burdens, to care for one another... We need to be with one another. 
And we need to covenant together to become more Christ-like together. This is where we understand the progress that the Holy Spirit makes, that we commit not only to the easy parts of church life, but to the hard parts of walking out faith in the valleys, not only on the peaks. If you are here, a great point of application today, and you've come to faith in Jesus, that's the first point, repent and believe in Jesus. The second point is if you're here and you haven't become a member of the church, we'd love to talk with you about that. And here's why we're so serious about this. Because there's no other effort There's no other effort we can give that has such a guaranteed end as serving God through the church. There's no guarantee of such effectiveness like submitting yourself to Jesus' effectiveness in this day and age. And this is where we see, lastly, the eternity of the church. The eternity of the church. Look at the optimism Paul puts on the church. You already opened up to Ephesians, Ephesians 3, 7 through 11. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I'm the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers, the authorities, and the authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose, read eternal story that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. And then turn the page to Ephesians 5, 25 through 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she, that is the church, might be holy and without blemish. How is God going to get the gospel to the nations? Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God is displayed. How is God going to transform broken individuals struggling with sin, wrestling with the reality of our flesh? Jesus is going to wash his church and one day present it spotless and blameless to himself. To be part of God's story, to have hope that it's working, is to submit yourself to the work of Jesus in, on, and through the church. We're called as believers to do hard things. And that's why God gives us each other. But at the end of the day, we gather, we work, believe, belong, and become more Christ-like, not because we need each other. That's a side perk. But we do it because we need Jesus. And Jesus has promised to do that work, to meet our efforts, to comfort and work to that end, and to secure us a future through the work of the church. The hope of Christianity is not in the church. The hope of Christianity is in Jesus. And Jesus saves people by his mercy and brings them together in the church. And this is where I want to transition in brief to our final point this morning. How we savor the savior, savor the savior of the story. Savoring the savior of the story. Because if we want to understand how we live life in this church age, what you actually need to understand is the affection of your savior himself. What you think about the church, what you think about your purpose in this life today, what you think about your relationship to other believers and the plan of God is indicative of what you think about Jesus himself. What we just saw in Ephesians 5 is that Christ died for the church because he loved her as the eternal husband loves his faithless bride. He gave himself for her. 
why. That giving was atonement. That giving was taking your sins and experiencing the displeasure of his father for the first time in all eternity. Why all this structure of elders and deacons and membership and baptism and discipline? All this for a broken body of people where we sin against one another, the pastor preaches too long, and the parking lot is always icy? Why? Because this is God's passion on display. This is the best of God's story at this moment in time. This is the best of all God's possible plans for this present moment. Isn't that scandalous? If God had something better than this, isn't he sovereign? Isn't he all-powerful? Didn't he speak the world into existence? Doesn't he control the hearts of kings like streams in his hand? Can't he do anything? And the fact that he hasn't means that this right now is God's best pleasure on display. When you are here, when someone in Malaysia attends a church there or a Christian in an underground church in China goes there, they are as close to God's people in God's place in God's presence as we will be until we stand face to face in glory. Heaven looks more like the church, not less like it. We have something what Peter says, we have what angels long to look at. What the prophets of the Old Testament desired for, it is ours. Look how Peter puts this in 1 Peter 2 as it relates to the church and being filled with God's presence to be God's place. 1 Peter 2 verses 4 through 10. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, the story of the church. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. That is, whether you like it or not, God is doing a work. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you, writing to the church in dispersion, that's 1 Peter 1, 1, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may what? Proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here is the place. Here in the church, we are and are being built up as God's dwelling place. There's something supernatural about our ordinary gatherings and what we're doing here. And part of this, it's because in the midst of the church, we experience the uniqueness of God's presence. In this moment in time, we experience the uniqueness of God's presence, presence together. Look how Paul puts this in Ephesians three fourteen through 20. Johnny preached on this a couple weeks ago. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. 
that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Do you want to see Jesus in multidimensional fullness, his height, his breadth, his length, his beauty that surpasses all understanding, then where do we do it? Together with all the saints. You help me see Jesus. I would hope that I help you see Jesus. Because in your obedience, I see the work of redemption at play. Everything we try to do as a church is only something that God can do. When you stand up and you worship, God did it. He opened your eyes to see he put music in your heart and you worship not by the act of the flesh, but what Jesus says to Peter in Matthew 16, that God has done it. When you see my sins, you see that Jesus is a pastor greater than me and greater than Devin and greater than Daniel and greater than Rob and greater than Johnny. Collectively in our strengths, we scream of the supremacy of Jesus and in our weaknesses, we long for the spotlessness of Jesus. And as we do it together, we see him sufficient. And the gospel goes forward. Come as God's people today and worship not only the God who has brought salvation, but the God who is working it right now, this morning, here and across the globe. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Give us the wonderful spiritual gift of just showing up. Lord, as we submit ourselves to show up in the story of your redemption and to see our world through the, through the lens of what you're continuing to do, you take our feeble efforts, our weaknesses and our strengths, and you build something of surpassing beauty for the comfort of the saints, the salvation of the lost, and the glory of God. So Lord, we ask that it happens today here as we await your second coming. Amen.